We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing some of the latest election news. Today concerning Terry Gore continuing his push for the KMT presidential nomination. And Kerwin Jur visiting Washington DC and maybe mentioning more information that he should have while he was there. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs being set to open Taiwan's second representative office in Italy this summer. Government plans to offer incentive schemes to attract more foreign tourists. The National Development Council approving a $64.3 billion plan to make all buses and coaches elect by 2030, and the government dismissing calls for the decriminalisation of cannabis following a pro-weed rally in Taipei. But we'll begin with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu on Thursday, saying that Taiwan will be discussing President Tsai Ing-wen's possible attendance at November's APEC leaders' meeting in San Francisco with other countries. The statement came after US lawmakers wrote a letter calling for Tsai to represent Taiwan at the annual summit instead of a proxy, as has been the case in past years. Now, the letter to US Secretary of State Antony Blinken was signed by 21 House Republicans, and the signatories stated that prohibiting Taiwan from sending its president to the leaders' summit was tantamount to the United States asking China for a permission slip to conduct bilateral foreign relations. Now, speaking on the sidelines of a legislative hearing, the foreign minister said that Taiwan will be holding talks with other countries involved to make the best arrangements for the island's participation at this year's APEC leaders' summit. However, the foreign minister did not elaborate on when such talks could take place, Brian. So, 21 lawmakers, Republican lawmakers from the US, write a letter because it's in San Francisco, I guess. You know. Yeah, yeah, I guess we shall see because in the past, Taiwan has tried to lower its profile to avoid provoking China. Sending, for example, Morris Chang of TSMC or James Song, who is more pan blue. And so, this is a way in which then by sending a direct representative of Taiwan or the president herself, that is a way to avoid rubbing China the wrong way. And so I think particularly now, after these meetings between the U.S. Speaker of the House and Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president, uh, the window has kind of been shifted. The, the, the line is kind of shifted. And so in this case, perhaps China would respond with some register of displeasure. I mean, there's the attempt to avoid military exercises. That's why Tsai, for example, would recently meet with McCarthy in California, rather in Taiwan itself. But then now perhaps it would be more possible for her to go herself because of the fact that things have changed so much. Yeah, um, I agree that things have changed to to a degree, and I'm thankful to these particular uh, Republican lawmakers or any uh, lawmakers anywhere in the world, for that matter, who express support for Taiwan. But um, it doesn't seem like a wise idea to do this, and I very much doubt that Tsai will uh, do it because it just provides uh, more opportunity for divisions. So, you know, I can imagine um, other pro-China countries, I'm thinking Cambodia, perhaps, you know, uh, boycotting or this. And it's just not what we need at this moment in time. And I think she's very cognizant of that. She has not um, been a provocative leader, at least in in my view. So uh, I don't see why it would be necessary. I don't see what we would really gain by it. And I see a lot of harm that would come from it. So I think after they sit around and talk about it, uh, they will once again send a proxy and uh, perhaps someone different this time around. And of course, Michael, um, the other countries have to agree. And that's very highly unlikely, like you hinted at. 
Right. And then uh, agree. And then um, there, there could be uh, boycotts and just it, America doesn't need more strain in their relationship with China at this point. We don't need more strain. And I, I understand them saying it's giving China a, a blank check or it's giving them. But let's just you know be pragmatic about this sometimes and just ask, would this really benefit Taiwan, her going? And the answer in my book is not enough for the cost damage assessment. So uh, it, we, we, just, we just don't need it at this point. Yeah, it does seem that China reacts to anything these days. And for example, with the Tsai McCarthy meeting, the drilling that occurred, it is aimed at simulating a blockade. So the point is to give uh, the military more chances to practice military scenarios. And so now, I think with meetings or uh, what crosses China's red line, which is always shifting as well, uh, that could lead to more exercise. And I think the, the danger is that there'll be another round of hyperbolic reactions, which perhaps will ultimately contribute to raising of tensions in the region. Uh, and so it is a question. I mean, I think particularly, it's interesting too how this reflects shifts in Taiwan's position in the world. In the past, for example, being able to send a president directly, for example, would be perceived as an accomplishment, uh, something that would be used as a credit for the next set of elections, for example, by the incumbents to tout as, as a diplomatic breakthrough and so forth. But now then, particularly with much more global focus on Taiwan as a potential flashpoint, uh, sometimes it draws attention in ways that you don't want and gives China a chance to carry out activities in a way that is not advisable. You make a good point as well that uh, domestic politics would come into play here as well. The blue side, if she were to actually uh, attempt to go and the whole APEC summit would turn into a, a madhouse, the, the blue camp would definitely bring that up during the presidential election. They would, you know, accuse the DPP of being troublemakers and causing unnecessary strife. So, yeah, it seems like a, a lose-lose rather than a win-win at this point. So I, don't, I just don't see why they would even really give it much serious consideration. But Brian, of course, they probably are looking for a new representative or a proxy yeah. for APEC. Because, of course, Maurice Jung is not a young man anymore. <laughs> That's right. I mean, neither is James Song. So it is a question, then, who they do send and what kind of signal they hope to convey in that way. Uh, sending James Song is a sign of bipartisanship, or at least a signal towards that. And for Morris Chang, that's emphasizing Taiwan's economic place in the world. That is critical to many industries, particularly in semiconductors and so forth. Uh, so it actually is a kind of question who they will send. And it is also possible that they will send someone uh, that is lower than Tsai, but uh, also a political figure. And so I think it kind of depends on the profile there. Could they send Vincent Xiao again? They could. They could eventually do that. I mean, that's a, uh, a, I mean, he's now a city councillor, so there's that political consideration there, but uh, it has occurred in the past. Moving on now and looking at some new election news which came out this week, and this came in the guise of meeting the press and an overseas trip. Now, Terry Gwar on Tuesday pushed his case of being nominated as a KMT's 2024 presidential candidate once again, telling reporters that he believes the party will fill the strongest candidates with the highest public opinion ratings. And he went on to say, well, he said he's enjoying soaring ratings and opinion polls on prospective presidential <laughs> candidates at the moment, and he firmly believes that the KMT KMT chairman Eric Jew will recruit the candidate with the highest public opinion ratings. Gore also dismissed the possibility that the KMT had already pre-selected Ho Yo E as its presidential candidate, saying there's been good communications between him, Jew, and Party Secretary General Justin Huang, and he believes that the party chairman will impartially choose the strongest candidate. And he went on to tell the press that he will work to safeguard Taiwan's dignity based on a solid economic foundation and also build the country into a tech island. 
Now, meanwhile, in the United States, Taiwan People's Party Chairman Kerwin Zhe was enjoying the sights of Washington on that leg of his US trip this week. Now, Kerr attended a roundtable discussion at the US-Taiwan Business Council in Arlington, Virginia. He also met with several US representatives. And after one of those meetings, when he was talking to the press, he blurted out, only I'm going to say that because that's the word the local press used, that he had a secret meeting with American Institute in Taiwan chairwoman Laura Rosenberger. Now, Kerr's office had to come out later and confirm that he did meet with the AIT head to discuss cross-strait situations and other issues. Now, on Thursday morning Taiwan time, Kerr visited AIT's Washington, D.C. headquarters for a second time. And speaking to reporters after leaving the office then, Kerr said that he met with the director of AIT's Office of Political and Security Affairs and he also said that officials from the U.S. National Security Council also attended the meeting and they exchanged views on issues, including including Taiwan's national defence, military purchases and Taiwan's compulsory military service. But it appears he could have been a bit too quick there, as Kurd's aides were heard reminding him off-camera that he should have said, just talk to high-level US officials, because apparently both sides agreed to keep it secret that he was actually meeting with US officials from the National Security Council. But that didn't stop Kerr, because he went on to describe the meeting that maybe should have been kept secret as being very informative. And he told the US officials that Washington should help Taiwan join regional economic organisations. So, Michael, we've got Mr Gore really wanting to be the president and Mr Kerr being a bit unpresidential. Yeah, so uh, if I were William Lai right now, I would be salivating at the chance of running against Terry Gore because he's just the perfect... Uh, target. He's made um, huge amounts of money in China. You want to trust safeguarding Taiwan? Uh, it's a conflict of interest. It's pretty simple to see. Running a country is nothing like running a company. I mean, I have the slogans right themselves. And if he really cared about the KMT, what he should do right now is be quiet and support the, the nominee, which apparently uh, looks like it's going to be Ho. And he, he had his chance four years ago. He did a hissy fits, uh, quit the party. So I, I really don't understand why he wants to do this, except that he seems to have a savior complex. Um, he, he's 72. He's made plenty of money. He could go and enjoy the rest of his retirement on whatever island he chooses. But he somehow believes that he has some sort of uh, nearly divine or uh, some, something that is going to make him the, the person who pulls off, I don't know, peace between the sides or something. But uh, I think he's been around people who tell him yes for most of his uh, adult life. And when you're surrounded by sycophants, you don't generally have a very good perception of who you are or where you are in the world. And this guy is just in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, yeah, if they were to run him, um, I think the DPP would love that. So the smart move, uh, and I would agree with, with most of the pollsters and other people who are, are commenting about it being Hoyoe, I would agree with them. He seems to be the one who has the greatest opportunity to reach out to, he, you know, he's Taiwanese, yet he also uh, has a, a long uh, career in the, the KMT, but he's also, you know, put himself out there as a person who's not necessarily an ideologue and all of this. So, yeah, if Lai Qingde, for example, were to slip up a few times and somehow say something that was just 
too off-putting. There's a chance that in a, a two-way race between Ho and Lai, that, that Ho could come out on top. But then, of course, you have Mr. Ke, who you just mentioned, the Ke factor. And so I don't know if I agree with you that uh, he was um, blundering these things. I wonder if he knew exactly what he was doing, because the whole point of him going to America, according to him, was to, to know and be known. So if you were to go and have a meeting and you didn't talk about it, it wouldn't really be very uh, effective to your, your brand. So, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll say maybe he's more savvy than we give him credit for. And um, I don't think, and I, this is, again, I agree with other people who have written about this, I don't think that he's genuinely running for president to believe that he will become president, but rather to um, assist his party and get more of his party members elected, perhaps on uh, legislator at large lists. So he's going there for a similar reason to why Ho went over to Singapore to demonstrate and show that I'm a, a serious candidate. But he does need to break out of this, you know, small, he's got just a sliver of support. He needs to break out of that. So him saying this, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that I, I think it was a stumble. And Brian, uh, Michael didn't touch on Terry Gore's soaring ratings and opinion polls. <laughs> Well, I mean, there are various polls, and I think politicians will always claim that. But uh, I do find it memorable that Go, since he announced his previous run by saying that he had the endorsement of Matsu, the sea goddess, yes. whenever he runs now, he has to claim that he has divine endorsement. So this time mm. he claims that he also has the backing of the god of war, which is uh, maybe fitting for cross-strait tensions and, and so forth. But uh, in that sense, yeah, I mean, Go has really wanted to run for president for going back 10 years, effectively. He's always been trying to make moves aimed at building up uh, a position for that. I mean, even 2014, during the Sunfire Movement, he suddenly appeared in the legislature claiming he could intercede with his students. And the students' occupiers, of which I was then part of the movement, were kind of like, what is happening? Uh, no, thank you, actually. But he did perceive then that the KMT was losing the support of young people, and he tried to step in to build up what he thought would frame himself as a way that he can get young people on his side. And so he's been kind of angry in this way for all this time uh, to try and run for president. But then it's just another accomplishment he wants. He already is at various points, and uh, depending on the year, sometimes Taiwan's the richest person. And he has all these factories in China, and he's already built a career on that. Uh, it is actually interesting the way in which he is trying to rebrand himself at present. I mean, uh, particularly in the last run, uh, while we have Ko, for example, saying that, well, I met with all these high-ranking officials, Terry Go, when he went to Donald Trump's White House to tout his close relations with Donald Trump uh, in the last election round, he claimed when he met reporters outside that he no longer remembered his meeting because, and who he had met with because he's becoming senile. So I thought it was a little more clever than Ko uh, saying all this perhaps deliberately or uh, ambiguous about, you know, just playing coy about whether he, he made a gaffe or not. Uh, but then Terry Go is emphasizing that relation with America in, in the last run. And this time around, he's talking about suddenly that Taiwan should not be so economically dependent on China. And this is dangerous. And yet he is the quintessential Taishang. He's the iconic Taishang mm -hmm. that uh, uh, owns factories in China. And so what that... And Foxconn is still a major player in the... Uh, electronics industry and so forth. Uh, even during, for example, COVID, I mean, Terrigo is trying to build himself by, up by negotiating vaccine purchases of BioNTech, for example, uh, and then claiming it's a credit for himself to really use this for the, the uh, his, his future electoral runs. And so it's a question then. I mean, I think then particularly with Ho, uh, with, and uh, uh, the question was if 
Eric Chu would try to run himself. And it seems like Eric Chu's chances have now receded and the party is tilting towards Ho. But the choice of the party to go with a closed process rather than open primary, that is something the Go camp thought would benefit themselves because of the fact that perhaps there's a way that, for example, Go could angle himself as a compromise candidate. There are people in the KMT uh, leadership that distrust Ho Yui because of the fact that he historically has not been as strong on cross-street relations in a stridently pro-unification direction. And there's been this long fear of another Li Donghui rising to the top of the uh, party and then having completely different views. Ho was also close to the DPP in the past. A DPP did try to recruit him during the Chen Shui-bian presidency, for example. And so that's another reason for distrust. And so Go sees an opportunity there. But it does look like the Pan Blue camp will be divided. I mean, Ko Enjo is running too, and he definitely will run. Uh, otherwise, he has no longer political relevance. And uh, that will lead to infighting between uh, all forces there that will split the vote for them. Yeah, and uh, there's not just that as well. Yesterday, was it, there was a group out in front of the KMT headquarters demanding that uh, Han Guoyu be the person who runs <laughs> again. So they they are, as you noted, very divided. Uh, but I was I was heartened by one thing that Ko said in, in one of his press conference. He said there was a fixed difference distance rather between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, and he says, "quote The distance between people's hearts on both sides is variable, and China." Should should understand this. That's a pretty decent um, synopsis of, of, of the situation. I mean, Qing rule uh, was 128 years ago, then Japanese for 50. The ROC here has you know, 78 years. The percentage of people here who think of China as their homeland or who have sentimental ties uh, are shrinking. Mainlanders, you know, made up about 12% maybe of Taiwan's population after 1945. So we're talking about 80% of people born here, identifying from here. So um, when you say that Ho, uh, they worry about him being a second Li Donghui, I've heard this a lot. But I also uh, remind people that I think, according to all the polls that I've seen, Li Donghui is still the most popular president ever in Taiwanese history, unless that's changed. So uh, although he later did uh, switch to being green, he also... Well, as president, he he seemed to have been a, a pretty respected, decent president. So perhaps, uh, really, the KMT needs to uh, shake off their old thinking and, and understand that the status quo that Ho says, I mean, rather, that Ko says we need to continue, the status quo is the status quo that was summarized by Tsai Ing-wen after her decisive win in 2020 as she spoke to the BBC and said, there's no reason for us to declare independence because we are already independent. That is the status quo that the majority of people in Taiwan currently are um, accepting. So, yeah, they need to rethink this completely. And uh, again, I would say that if they don't pick Ho, they are just shooting themselves once again in the feet. Of course, Brian, another thing that Kerr said this week in Washington was he's introducing America to Taiwan's third political force. Yeah, I mean, that's a claim that's been circulating for a while. I mean, there's a lot of discourse about the need for third parties beyond blue and green going back more than a decade. And Ko is touting himself as that. I mean, the interesting thing about the TPP, uh, his party, was that originally when it was launched, it had the unusual provision in the party charter to allow party members to be also part of other parties. And then nobody took that up. And so the party has also become much more overtly bluish. Uh, it did draw primarily from politicians who are of blue backgrounds uh, in terms of those that it fielded when it, it, it launched. And so the kind of claim 
blame for Ko, uh, particularly because he was originally elected as Taipei mayor with the backing of the Pan Green camp to be beyond these divisions is, is really faded, and Ko has rebranded himself in that sense. Uh, but now it's kind of interesting to see everyone trying to walk back their cross-strait statements before the elections. I mean, suddenly now Ko is not saying one family on both sides of the Taiwan Straits exactly. that share a common destiny. That talk has suddenly disappeared before elections. And, and as I mentioned with Go earlier, uh, it's similar, where suddenly now he's talking about the, the follies of depending too much on China, when historically that's what he leveraged on. And so everyone now in the Pan Blue camp, if they're smart, is trying to walk back their previously more pro-China statements, because they know that will be damaging to them in the uh, election. But I, I don't know if the, the electorate will take that. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week Now. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says that it's opening a second representative office in Italy this summer in Milan. Now, according to the Ministry's Department of European Affairs, it's acquired rental space for the new office. And if everything goes as planned, the new office could open in June or July. And Department Head Vincent Yao told reporters that the office will have five staff members and will be tasked with facilitating closer economic and trade ties with Italy's financial capital and its most prosperous manufacturing and commercial city. Yao also said the office will provide consular and emergency services to citizens in northern Italy, which is a popular travel destination for Taiwanese tourists. Now, there is currently a Taiwan Trade Centre in Milan, which is run by the Taiwan External Trade and Development Council, but that focuses solely on assisting Taiwanese businesses enter foreign markets and boost their global competitiveness. Now, of course, the move, Brian, comes as Italy's new Prime Minister has been voicing support for Taiwan and has also been trying to move away from China. Yeah, so I think particularly then this will be touted as another uh, diplomatic breakthrough in that sense, in that Taiwan is expanding the space it has internationally. And so there's a lot of focus on opening up new offices, for example, uh, particularly with Europe. Uh, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, there's a lot of discussion then about which direction then Europe should lean in. And, for example, comments by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, that, for example, France would seek, uh, Europe should seek its own path. That provoked a lot of questions. But then at the same time, you do see the pattern you see elsewhere in the world, and particularly right-wing leaders that are strident on Russia and China then will seek to increase ties with Taiwan. And so perhaps that is what we see here. But then it's also just, uh, I think sometimes the the office openings, there are times in which China reacts to its symbolic moves, such as uh, the naming of the office and so forth. And so that's another question if that will happen here. I would agree that uh, a lot of people are reassessing their China slash Russia philosophy. I don't know if I would agree that this would be touted as a breakthrough, but um, there's not much to comment on this except that uh, good, I guess, and also these de facto sort of embassies are apparently just as effective as real ones, and it seems that having these in in all sorts of countries would be just as effective as uh, you know an official embassy in one of the allies that we have. So the idea that we're down to like 13 and could be 12 soon or whatever, it really doesn't matter because more important seems to be these little trade offices that can do everything that an embassy can do. And of course, Brian, Taiwan currently has more than one office in the UK, Germany, France and Switzerland. Yeah, that's right. And also some of these countries are, are quite massive. And so it does actually make sense to have more than one, I mean, just in terms of travel or convenience and so forth. Uh, it does prove inconvenient if in a country with a large population or just that's it's hard to get around, then you only have one and that, that creates inconveniences. 
And moving on now, the government is continuing to seek more ways to boost inbound tourism, with the Ministry of Transport this week announcing that independent travellers to Taiwan can have a chance to win 5,000 NT in shopping vouchers beginning May the 1st. Now, according to the Tourism Bureau, the programme is open to all independent travellers who enter Taiwan with a foreign passport and stay for between 3 and 90 days. Now, they must register, though, before arriving in Taiwan at a government website in order to take part in the scheme, which will apparently be running through 2025. And now, half of the 500,000 5,000 NT vouchers will be handed out this year to independent travellers as a prize and a lucky draw when they arrive in the country. Now, those lucky draws are only taking place, though, at the Taoyuan International Airport, Taipei's Sungshan Airport, Taichung International Airport and Kaohsiung International Airport. So, Michael, I mean, the government, 5,000 NT to sort of make tourists come to Taiwan. Okay, so if you were um, from a, a, a place where salaries are, are low or Southeast Asia or something, per- perhaps you would see that 5000 as as a useful um, stipend or extra money. But the whole process of going through this and winning a lottery or whatever, it just sounds complicated. And I think the majority of people, even uh, from anywhere, are going to have a hard time wrapping their head around why they should go through the process of doing Doing this, and then of course, if you're talking about uh, affluent tourists, it's just not enough to be attractive. The government needs to think of something that is going to attract people outside, specifically of Taipei. So I love my city of Kaohsiung here, and uh, that's why I live here. But I'm free to say that I think there's too little to do here for tourists. So when you come down here. Um, I could take you around for a couple of days, let's say two days, and we would have a, a good time. But that's about it. And there's, unless you want to go up into the hills and uh, you know way up there and, and enjoy some Aboriginal culture, so we need we need to think longer term and think about what what's the reason for coming here. So you know, with Thailand, they've got their beaches, and now they've got their weed and other things. But we don't have an identity uh, besides like food or so. Yeah, I, I wish that they would get together and ask themselves what the tourists of twenty. 40 are going to be wanting and then start building towards those so we can attract people in the future. And that might have to include some conversations about things like, ooh, maybe casinos or things that, you know, have been rejected in the past. But we need more things to do, both in Taichung and in Kaohsiung. Uh, those Those are my thoughts. Yeah, it's kind of funny to me because I feel like we just went through all these years of endless political debate about cash vouchers for COVID and so forth, and how they're distributed and how much is distributed and what means by which that occurs, such as at post offices or through ATMs and so forth. And we just had another recent debacle about that, and now it's uh, in people's ATMs and so forth. And so I wonder then why this is the approach geared towards tourists who will, for example, have much more difficulty navigating institutions that are already complex. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's too many hoops. Uh, It's not as cringe as, for example, Hong Kong and after all these protests and years of political repression, then trying to win tourists back with fancy campaigns and handing out free tickets and so forth. Uh, Every country now also is scrambling back for tourists uh, because now we are moving beyond the pandemic. But then it's uh, kind of a question then why this is the approach. And uh, I think there are ways to make it more attractive to people. And I also then question the rollout of this program. I mean, who is going to be accepting the vouchers? Will this create confusion? Because these things are just targeting uh, domestic Taiwanese population for economic relief measures for COVID. We're already confusing and uh, created confusion for vendors and, and so forth. And so what now, I, I kind of wonder. And staying with tourism-related issues, the local tourism sector this week came out and 
call on the government, Brian, to open Taiwan up to Chinese group tours because it does make Taiwan a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's actually、uh, quite interesting because in the past, particularly,、uh, there's all these claims that the Taiwanese economy is reliant on Chinese tourists, and then COVID happened, and so that kind of that takes the wind out of those sails. And actually, I think the groups,、uh, the group tours, the the industry groups that advocate for Chinese tourists, they've lost a lot of power in this time because just we had no tourism, and so then claiming this is the only imp- group of tourists that's important, basically, that that doesn't actually fly as much when you, we already carried on for all these years without really tourism.、Uh, I think it's be. Seen if that occurs though, because particularly of the political sensitivity, and because when、uh, compared to when there were group tours previously in Taiwan, the sensitivity of Taiwan has just increased so many times. I base my opinion on the people that I talk to when I go to Kending, because that's really the the spot that used to have a, a good chunk of、uh, Chinese tourists on their you know their their group tours, and it's really divided with some people very enthusiastically hoping for their return, and other people telling me that. It's just not really worth it because the margins that they make from these groups is just so small. Because the, they they barter down to you know one meal、uh, each person, thirty NT profit or something like this, and they crowd the beaches and other places. And as Brian pointed out,、um, these past years, you know, Kending, for example, has seen occupancies during holidays at eighty plus percent, maybe even higher. And so yeah, they don't necessarily need them, and that's been demonstrated. However, as you said, as you said, Gavin, they do make、uh, generally a lot of money if you look at the the big picture. So、um, I'm of two minds about it, but I, I I tend to err on the the side of freedom. So I would, if it were me, I would probably allow them to return. And of course, Brian, the minute the deputy head of the Mainland Affairs Council said after these tourism agencies had come out and called for the opening up of Taiwan group tours to Taiwan, he basically said, "Well, take your argument to Beijing." <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the ball is in Beijing's court in that sense. I think、uh, particularly it is to be seen what, how the Chinese government、uh, reacts to this. I mean, traditionally the Chinese government has tried to use tourism as a way to pressure Taiwan, and so I I, I wonder if they will continue with that. And moving away from tourism now, and talking about public transport, as the National Development Council this week announced that it's approved a seven-year, 64 billion NT plan to make all buses and coaches electric by 2030. Now, according to the NDC, the program aims to decarbonise public transport nationwide between 2024 and 2030, and of course, that's part of the government's efforts to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Now, the plan was proposed by the Ministry of Transport, and it states that public bus and coach operators will receive subsidies of 3.34 million NT for each battery electric vehicle purchased to help them quickly phase out old vehicles, and then also get cash for basically follow-up operations on the buses they purchase, fixing repairs, whatever, whatever. Now, data shows, if you're interested in the numbers, that as of February of this year, there were 1,161 registered electric public buses and 29 coaches operating island-wide. And of course, Michael, you happen to live in a city with a lot of electric buses already. Yeah, I think Gaosheng is still the the number one electric bus、uh, utilizer in the nation at this point, and it's good for a lot of reasons. So、uh, in the past, I remember interviewing a, a minister back in the Chengdu administration, a transport minister, and they were open-minded enough to buy buses from China at that time, electric buses, because they said that they just didn't really have any other choices in Taiwan at that at that time. So a lot of these buses that are have been running for all these years in Gaoshan have been Chinese, but Foxconn has now、uh, opened a division, and they're mainly going to be 
producing them out of southern Taiwan, specifically Kaohsiung. And these buses are better, and they look better, and they run better, and they're just really, really awesome. So if we can have a clear plan as to where we're going to get the electricity to run these buses from, and where we're going to dispose of old batteries in a way that's not going to pollute Taiwan, this is all awesome. And the other thing that's really good about it, I think, is helping to relieve range anxiety for average people. So, for example, I recently just bought a, a secondhand car, and, you know, um, I thought for a little bit about an electric car or an electric scooter, but the place where we live, I just couldn't figure out, like, where I would put the charger or how it could possibly work, so it just, no. So when people see these electric buses on the freeway or them going long distances, and this is a bus, you know, not just a, a, a private car, it does uh, give confidence. So Foxconn, I think they're opening a company called Foxtron to make these vehicles. They're going to put out a three-seater and a four-seater and a six-seater within the next year or two. And seeing these buses on the road makes me, at least, uh, feel quite confident in their technology and more willing to take a jump over to electricity. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, particularly, we also see the rollout of electric scooters for police officers across the nation, for example. And that's another thing that encourages use of uh, electric vehicles. You see them driving around everywhere. And so I think that's also the case with city buses. Uh, I think the rollout, uh, it's kind of interesting to think about just when Taiwanese companies such as Foxconn do lean much more into electric vehicles now. I mean, that's a part of the uh, kind of added value process for a lot of these electronic companies, trying to get in on electronic vehicles, electric vehicles, and so forth. Uh, but I think it is helpful, and I think it is good to see this uh, plans to spread uh, kind of usage of electric vehicles. I mean, that's definitely, as we talk about all these sustainable goals, I mean, taking steps to do that, I, that is helpful. But of course, Brian, several months ago, the United Daily News had a front-page story basically saying that, well, these electric buses that Taiwan's operating aren't quite what they're cut up to be because there's been lots of problems with engine problems and also battery problems. Yeah, I mean, there's a question. I mean, there'll definitely be critics as well. And it does depend on the specifics of, uh, for example, what models are using, uh, reliability, and so forth. And government does have a tendency to, for example, undercut to go for cheap options when that is not always the maybe most advisable option. Uh, but then it's to be seen. I think there is actually some pushback from particularly conservatives regarding renewable energies uh, sources because of the notion that this is new and untested and so forth. But I also think that's always going to be the case with new technologies, for example. And of course, Michael, it's okay the government saying we'll fund these public buses, but what about the private companies? Well, uh, when it comes to like the scooters that uh, Brian was talking about, they many cities do offer subsidies for private uh, scooters. So, you know, a Gogoro is actually uh, a little bit expensive, but when you tack on the, the subsidies, it becomes much more reasonable. So I think the government is going to have to continue uh, thinking of plans to subsidize uh, these vehicles as well. But perhaps more importantly is the example of electric scooters, and I'm going to use Gogoro here because it's the biggest one. They have done an extremely wonderful job of convincing people that you have nothing to fear by taking an electric motorcycle because almost literally every convenience store you can find a couple of battery shelves. Some places there are huge piles of them, so you, you would never have to worry about not having a fresh battery. So that's going to be something that we need to develop the, the infrastructure for these electric vehicles. And I feel like that it's moving a little bit slow. Like, I would like to see some parking spots, for example, that are specifically out, you know, on, on the street that are, have the electric thing there. Most of the people that I know who have an electric vehicle, a Tesla or whatever it may be, they live in an apartment building that has built into their basement 
and parking one of these you know, machines or several of these machines that can charge their vehicles. But that's not the case for, you know, many, many other places. And we're talking about a, an older part of Kaohsiung, say Fengshan or Saiming District, and there's almost none of that infrastructure there. So that needs to come before a lot of people are going to switch. And before we go this week, the Ministry of Justice this past weekend came out guns blazing to reaffirm what it called the government's strong opposition to the legalisation of cannabis. Now, the statement was issued after Wave Green, a group pushing for the decriminalisation of cannabis and cannabis products, held a rally in front of the presidential office. Now, members of the activist group and their supporters called on the Justice Ministry to remove the stigma associated with cannabis and to cease its war against, well, weed and hash for that matter. Now, the Justice Ministry responded to those calls by releasing a statement in which it said the criminalising of the use of marijuana is aimed at keeping people healthy and making society safe and stable. And the Ministry also cited a panel of Taiwanese experts, those being neurologists, pharmacologists and toxicologists, saying they concluded that the drug will make users addictive and damage their central nervous systems. And it went on to basically say that many other countries still maintain bans on marijuana and Taiwan's policy is in line with the global trend, Brian. Yeah, it's ironic because particularly Taiwan likes to position itself as progressive or on the forefront of trends in a way that other countries are not. But that's not the case with the drug policy. And particularly even regarding cannabis, it's very severe. And the government, I think, is not going to back down on this. There's a notion then that if you allow for legalization or decriminalization, this will allow for social misconduct. And I think particularly for governments trying to win elections, then they're very cautious of being seen as weak on crime or weak on drugs. And you have all these uh, photos, for example, politicians standing in front of every historic bust uh, and that works out for PR. Uh, so even I was there actually at the uh, rally and, and there's enormous police presence, uh, much disproportionate size. Uh, they're taking everyone that entered the premises on video. Uh, there's sniffer dogs sniffing the bags of everyone that went in. And uh, even people that had, for example, um, some of the stalls had plastic uh, cannabis leaves and then they would go and check if it's real and come back and it's like, are you sure this is not a real leaf? And it's made of plastic and so I try to tear it apart and like see you cannot tear it apart it's plastic they would not believe it uh and so it's it's one of those things i think the government is not going to back down so easily from this that's rather naive though brian it's it's very strange i actually think there's a lack of knowledge uh, among law enforcement is it real or is it plastic yeah it's it's clearly plastic i mean you just feel it i mean it's it's not real but they kept coming back to some stalls yes it was a bit strange yeah, that's uh, and, and also you mentioned all these experts who are talking. When I've interviewed experts that have uh, credentials that come from um, more international uh, universities and stuff, they they tell me very clearly that uh, it would be better that they legalized uh, medical cannabis that rather than giving people uh, bags of sleeping pills or various other things. And you know they're they're very clear. They understand very clearly. So I think the position is not based on science, but as Brian said it's based on politics. Another thing I, I hear are some really ridiculous excuses as to why these laws are in place. They talk about the opium wars, which has nothing really to do with Taiwan, uh, at least in modern times in any way. And then they talk, as you said, about, you know, uh, oh, global trends. That's just not the case, actually. The, the progressive global trend is the opposite direction. However, if they want an Asian place to watch, they can just turn their gaze to a place we are often mistaken taken for Thailand. They legalized uh, medical marijuana in 2018, and then more recently, it's been decriminalized completely. That was the legislature and the courts that did that, I believe. And 
So, okay, if you are adamantly opposed to it right now, that's fine. How about if we set up a five-year or a 10-year study of Thailand and try to figure out if things like drunk driving accidents decrease or if, um, you know, Thailand has a big problem with uh, speed. I think they call it Yaba there. What if that decreases, bus for that decrease or usage? So <clears throat> if we watch Thailand and see how it progresses, um, perhaps we would be able to have some ammunition that would be relatable to a Asian country that is, in many ways, uh, has some similarity. And then finally, um, the, if they're claiming that they want to keep uh, addiction and all this down, the, the one that really galls me is ketamine. Ketamine is a third-degree drug in Taiwan, which means you are not forced to go into mandatory rehab or go to jail or something. You pay some sort of fine and you do some sort of education or something. But ketamine is the drug that was used to uh, euthanize my first cat when she had to go. It is a very severe chemical, and why in the world would this be a third-degree one? And then you put uh, cannabis products on the same level as, you know, ecstasy and other uh, more serious amphetamines and this sort of thing. So they do not have their logic in order in any way. And finally, I'll say it again, let's watch Thailand. I mean, just imagine every single day we watch the news and it's drunk driving crash into here, crash into there. It's, and what, what if we could help reduce some of this? So let's watch Thailand. Yeah, it would definitely bring in a lot of tourism as well at a time That's in which the, the, the government is trying to revitalize tourism. And so that also distinguished Taiwan from China, let's say, which their draconian policies. CBD, for example, was outlawed in Hong Kong, uh, despite that it, 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 there's been such a setback, and I think particularly Taiwan, it's a way to show its uh, progressive values in that sense. But you, as you said, it's, it's really you know the election. If this was after 2024 in January, perhaps you know there would be a slightly more nuanced take on it. But you, as you, yeah, you cannot say something pro weed when you are entering election season. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Gaoshing by Michael Smith. Also, thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.